to you from verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. When I was in seminary, I read lots of big theological books about history, theology, grammar for Hebrew and Greek. And yet, in those years since finishing school, one of the books that I read during those formative years in seminary that I've pulled off the shelf the most to come back to is a little book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. As a pastor, I see almost every week how important and how messy relationships are. The authors in that book that I just mentioned said this, good relationships just don't drop out of the sky. The Bible assumes that relationships on this side of eternity will be messy and will require a lot of work. All of our relationships are less than perfect and they require work if they're going to thrive. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians chapter two, the passage that we just heard read is about relationships. In verse five, it says, in your relationships with one another. That's the context for this passage. And in these verses, we have a glimpse from the apostle Paul about how hard relationships can be and about how they can be healed and how relationships can be healing. Now, (coughs) As you know, some of you, the book of Philippians didn't just float out of the air. It came from the Apostle Paul. It was written to a church in Philippi about a very specific situation or reasons. And one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi is because we know this in chapter 4 and verse 2. There were two people in the church and they were fighting. They had a quarrel. Now, we don't know what they were fighting about. But what happened is what often happens when two people fight eventually other people pick sides. And what started as an interpersonal conflict between these two people became a division in the whole community. There was a discord in the church. And so Paul writes the book of Philippians partly to engage in this question about relationships. 
And he's thinking not just about relationships we have inside the church, but really any kind of human relationship with friends, with family, romance, even relationships that we have as countries, as nations, as people groups. How do we be healed and experience healing? That's what this passage helps us to think about. Now, let me just say, there are certain kinds of pain in relationships that need support and care in addition to or beyond what's here in Philippians 2. So please don't hear me saying today in this sermon, this is all you need to deal with relational pain. But this is a really good foundation. And for all of us, if we are grasping the truth that's here in these verses, it's going to help us experience healing and wholeness in our friendships, in our families, inside the church. It could be healing for the whole world. So let's take a look at the passage. And see what it says about relationships. Three things I want to show you today. Paul says, seek unity through humility by looking to Jesus. Seek unity through humility by looking to Jesus. So let's take a look and see what he means. Unity. Come with me to verse 2. The passage says, Paul speaking to this church that's divided. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now that's Paul's call to unity. Same love, one in spirit, one in mind. And so we ask the question, what does he mean? What is the kind of unity that he envisions? Well, we're helped by the words of Jesus. On the night before Jesus' death, Jesus was praying. And in his prayer, he said to God, his father, praying for the church. He was looking down the corridor of history and he was thinking of us. He was thinking of all of his people. And on the night before Jesus' death, he prays to God, his father, and he says, may they, the church, be one as we are one. That's interesting. Jesus is saying that the kind of unity that he wants the people of God to experience is patterned after the unity that he experienced with the Father. Now, here's what that means. This unity, what Paul is calling for here in Philippians 2, is unity without uniformity. It's oneness, but never sameness. It's the allowance for difference, even the celebration of difference, but without division. And of course, we know all kinds of examples of this sort of unity. Think, for example, of an orchestra. If you've ever been to a symphony or seen an orchestra play, you know that the people on stage have different instruments and they're all playing different parts. And yet the music is beautiful and it touches your soul because all that difference comes together for a common vision, a common purpose. They're aiming at the same thing. And so when all that difference comes together in a harmonious way, the result is one beautiful piece of music. It's unity. It's not uniformity. It's genuine oneness, but not everyone being the same. Here's another example. If if your music's not your thing, if you're into sports, you know that a team to function well has to do very different things in unison. If everyone was a forward Or if everyone was on defense, that would not be a very effective team. But a team is successful. A team achieves its goals, its objectives, when all those different players come together and form a common oneness. 
Whatever example you'd like, we know this to be true, that there's a kind of unity in which depends on difference. And those differences coming together to form a whole, a harmonious whole. And Paul's saying inside the church, you're meant to be different. Unity is never the erasure of difference, but it's the destruction of division. That's what Paul's calling for. And so the question becomes, well, on what basis can these people have unity? Or another way to say it is, how can you be united with the people around you? I mean, if you look around, you say, yeah, these people seem nice. But if you got to know some of them, they'd probably drive you a little crazy. And more than that, we are really different. I mean, London's a city in which people come from all over the world with all kinds of different backgrounds, spiritual questions, all kinds of experiences. And so the question is, how can we be a community? Like, what's the foundation for our unity amid such profound difference? This passage shows us a couple of things, a couple of reasons, you might say, why Christians can be so united. Let me give you just a few. First, we have something in common. As you go out into the city, and especially as you come into the church, there's something that you have in common with every single person that you ever encounter. And that commonality should be at least partly a reason for unity. So I'll give you an example. Every single person that you meet, every single person you pass in the city, something you have in common with them is you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. Some people are very difficult to love. Some people get under your skin. Some people can be a real challenge. Some people do terrible things. And yet, they even they can be loved. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. John Calvin was trying to help people grasp the importance of this idea, and he put it this way. Many people are unworthy, if judged by their own merit, of love. And yet, here scripture helps us in the best way. When it teaches us that we're not to consider what they merit in themselves, but we are to look upon the image of God in all, and that is where we owe honor and love. So if you say of another person, they're contemptible and worthless, you are speaking of someone that the Lord has chosen to give the beauty of his image. Calvin saying, what do you have in common with every single person that you meet? Made in the image of God. That's something to love. That's something to honor. That's something to celebrate. And more than that, not just every person, but if you're a Christian, now I'm speaking to Christians for a minute. If you're a Christian and this is your church, we have something in common with other Christians that's even deeper, you might say, than the reality of the image of God. It's our union with Jesus. Come back with me, if you would, to verse one of the passage we read. Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. That is, Paul says, what you have in common with the person sitting next to you, if they're a follower of Jesus, you're both united to him. Whatever other differences you have, they're small in comparison to the bigness of what you have in common which is you've been saved by Jesus' grace. Now, let me give you an example. There are many things that are true about me. As an example, I like flat whites and I am Michelle's husband. Both of those things are true about me, but they're not equally important. One is much more formative to who I am. 
Christians experience discord and division when they allow minor differences to become more ascendant than their identity in Jesus. That's often where division comes from in the church. We know we have something that unites us in Christ, but what's really shaping us is whatever differences we're building our identities on. And Paul says, listen, you can experience a profound unity because you're united in Jesus. You have that in common. So something in common. Second thing, though, that he says about how unity is possible, you have a common purpose. You have a common mission. It's there in verse 2, Paul talks about the same love. That is, as Christians, what unites us is our purpose in the world, which is to help people see Jesus' love. And do you know what one of the most unattractive things about Christianity is? Disunified fighting Christians. It mars the witness. It gets in the way of the beauty of the gospel. You've heard people say, right? Oh, I like Jesus, but I'm not into the church. That's why. Because sometimes people look at communities of Christians and they see such division and they say, you look just like the world. But Jesus said, John 13, if you guys, he's talking to his church, if you guys can love each other, then the whole world is going to know you're my disciples. Unity is the strength of the gospel. Ishutu Abate, he's an Ethiopian scholar. He says, there's an Ethiopian proverb, threads united can tie up a lion. Powerful image. Unity is the strength of the church. It's the strength of the gospel because it shows people the love that brought us into God's family is the love that we now show to the world. And that love is a love across difference. And it's a powerful witness to what Jesus has done in bringing a diverse group of people to himself. We have something in common, image of God, union with Christ. We have a common purpose. We're making God's love known in the world. Third foundation for our unity, we have a shared future. Do you remember earlier I said that Paul's writing about two people in the Philippian church who are fighting? Well, he says in chapter four and verse two, I implore them, I I plead with them to be of one mind, to be unified. And then he says, because their names are written in the book of life. Whatever differences you have, Paul says, you're going to be in the same place forever. So start getting along now. There's a story told of two men, R.C. Sproul and Billy Graham. If you know anything about the history of evangelical Christianity in the 20th century, you know both those names. Very significant leaders in the church, and they had big differences. Big differences, theologically, approach to ministry. One day, someone asked R.C. Sproul, do you think that you'll see Billy Graham in heaven? And R.C. Sproul said, nope. And the audience was stunned. They were shocked. They said, Billy Graham? And then R.C. Sproul said, He's going to be, Billy's going to be so close to the throne of God and I'm going to be so far back, I doubt I'll be able to catch a glimpse of him. They had differences, sharp disagreement, but their names were written in the book of life. He says, that's where we're going. Whatever differences we have are pretty small compared to that. Paul says, that's your foundation for unity. What do you have in common? The image of God, union with Christ, common purpose, the same love that we're making known and a shared future. So be one. If only it were as easy as that though, right? 
There's something that gets in the way and it's there in verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What gets in the way of our unity? Selfish ambition. You say, isn't all ambition selfish? Not necessarily. Think again about the sports team that I mentioned. A sports team should be ambitious, right? They should want to win. They should want to defeat their opponents, score goals, whatever. But you know what selfish ambition is? It's when any individual player on a team cares more about their own glory than they do about the team's success. And when that happens, you have selfish ambition. And the team starts to fracture, starts to underperform. And Paul's saying, the thing that's going to destroy your community is selfish ambition. It's selfishness. When people inside the community, when persons inside of relationships, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or a church or between nations, care so much about their own agenda and interests that they steamroll and minimize and sideline the people around them. That's selfish ambition. And Paul says that's going to destroy you. But there's an antidote. There is a pathway to get to the kind of unity we need. And it's through humility. That's what Paul says, goes on in verse three. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of the others. Paul says the antidote is humility. Humility. What's humility? C.S. Lewis very famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not self-deprecation. Oh, I'm the worst. I'm terrible. Woe is me. That's pseudo pride. You're still talking all about yourself. But humility is a blessed self-forgetfulness. It's being able to live and to move in the world knowing that you are something, but you are not everything. You are not the most important part of the universe. And you can actually be fully present and engage with the people around you. One of the ways you know someone's humble is if you're having a conversation with them and they actually listen to you. You know, you've done perhaps, I certainly have, those conversations that you have with somebody and you're not present. You're not engaged, you're not listening, you're not thinking about what they're saying, you're focused on something else. But you realize a truly humble person is able to be perfectly present in any situation that they're in. They're able to be fully engaged because the most important person in the room is the person right in front of them. Because they're not thinking about what they get, they're thinking about what they can give. A humble person is a present person. And Paul says, if we're going to be a church, if you're going to be a people that experience healed unity, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in dating, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's in family, whether it's in a church, whether it's in the world itself, you gotta be humble. You're not to think less of yourself, but you are to learn how to think of yourself less. We're to be a community of people who learn the rare art of humility. And can I just say, pastorally and practically, <laughs> Our culture does not help us to become humble. I mean, nobody brags about being proud. Like, I'm so prideful. I want to be my friend. Nobody, nobody does that. But the fact is, everything in our modern culture propels pride. Think about it this way. 
1950, there was an organization called Gallup. They conduct polls, surveys, and they did a survey amongst young people who are about to go off to university. And they asked them this question. Do you consider yourself to be a very important person? In 1950, 12% of those young people said, yes, I'm a very important person. Gallup did the same poll in 2005. Do you think you're a very important person? 80% said, yes, I'm very important. And one cultural commentator looking at that survey said, we now live in the modern era called the time of the big me, in which everyone thinks that they're the most important person in the room. You know, isn't it interesting we call them selfies? Even if there's a bunch of people in the picture. If you saw Ted Lasso, the ussy, I kind of like that. If you didn't see Ted Lasso, go check it out. Our culture fuels a kind of individualism, an excessive individualism. And in this culture, humility actually is a really hard, a rare gem. It's a hard characteristic to find. And here's what else is interesting. (laughs) The trick with talking about humility is you can't become humble by trying to be humble. If you start focusing on yourself, I'm going to be really humble today. Well, you're focusing on yourself. So the question is, if we need to be unified, we're going to get there through humility. But how do we become humble? By looking to Jesus. Only by looking to Jesus. Here's the gospel summary in a sentence. You'll be a humble person to the degree that you see Jesus humbling himself for you. You will become a humble person if and only to the degree that you see Jesus humbling himself for you. And friends, can you see, think with me, the stunning logic of this passage. Verses one through four, Paul says, you have so much in common. Be unified, live humbly. And the Philippians are saying, well, how do we do that? Verse five, have the same mindset as who? Christ Jesus. And then in verses six through 11, Paul gives what is probably, arguably, the most stunning theological statement about the incarnation of Jesus in the entire Bible. And Paul says, if you want to become a humble person, if you want to experience unity, get your eyes off yourself and fix them on Jesus Christ. See what he's done. See who he is. And gazing on his great beauty, that's going to change you. And let me just briefly, we could spend sermons and sermons on this passage, but let me just briefly walk you through what Paul says about Jesus. Look with me, if you would, verse six. He says, first, Jesus was in very nature God. He's God. Paul does not say Jesus reflected God. Jesus talked about God. Jesus did things that made people think of God. He says he is God. Now, this is invoking the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, one that we don't have time to get into today. And even if we did, it it calls forth wonder and awe. But he's saying Jesus is God, God the Father, God the Son. But then come with me now to the rest of verse 6 and verse 7. Paul says, though being in very nature God, God himself, he makes himself nothing. And he takes on the appearance of a man. Paul's talking about the incarnation, incarnate, in flesh. That the eternal God 
came to earth and covered his glory and his majesty with humanity. So all the glory of the eternal, majestic, powerful, glorious God was now clothed in flesh that you could spit on and that you could cut and that needed food to be self-sustaining. It's a stunning thing. And what you see in Jesus is not just a humble act, but a humble life. Think all the way back to his birth. You know, we sing about it every single Christmas. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. I mean, just think about that for a second. The one who actually put the stars in the heavens was told, we don't have a room for you when he was being born. And so he was placed in the feeding trough, probably for pigs. And that was his first bed. That's a humble beginning. And Jesus's whole life is characterized by a profound humility, such that he goes out into the world always being humble. And one of the marks of that, we've already talked about it. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, you know what you never find? You never find a man who's rushing. Like you never see Jesus saying, oh, we're late, we gotta go. He's always calm. He's always perfectly present. He's always able to be fully focused on the person right in front of him. He's not always looking to make networking and connection possibilities. Oh, if I talk to this person, they're going to help me get a promotion. If I talk to this person, they're going to help me get into that school. He's just locked in with whoever's right in front of him. Humble. And of course, this beautiful, humble life. Never has there been a life more beautiful than Jesus. Culminates. You come down to verse 8. He humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ultimate example of his humility is that Jesus, the eternal God from whom life itself proceeds, becomes obedient to death. Now think with me, that phrase, obedient to death, it's odd, isn't it? Have you ever said of someone at their funeral, have you ever heard in a eulogy, they were obedient to death? You don't. We, death just happens. There's no obedience. It just happens to you. So why does Paul say Jesus was obedient to death? Because he was the only person for whom death had no rightful claim. He was the only person for whom death was an option. And yet Jesus willingly humbles himself and subjects himself to death even death on a cross, which was the most shameful, scandalous kind of death a person could experience. And he did it. Why? Verses three and four. He was valuing others above himself. He was looking out for your interests more than his own. Because on that day when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying in your place. On the cross, God treated Jesus in the ways you deserved. So that on this day, if you're in Jesus, he could treat you as he deserved. Jesus died in your place and for your sin. It's the ultimate example of humility. It's the ultimate example of someone coming and valuing others above themselves. Of looking out for the interests of others more than their own. Jesus is the most beautifully humble life you could ever see. And it culminates with him dying on the cross for you. And friends, if you see that. When you see that, you become humble. 
The sheer beauty, I don't just mean if you know it, if you experience it, if you feel it, if that truth becomes real to you, the stunning beauty of Jesus's accomplishment frees you from the bondage of pride and it turns you into a person who's becoming increasingly humble. So here's what I want to do to close. I want to try to apply this for just a few minutes. What would it look like? What would happen to us if we became humble? If we started to experience unity in the ways that this passage is calling us to. I want to show you the freedom of humility and the love of humility. Just to close. So first, the freedom of humility. Humility first would free you from always viewing other people as competition. You exhausted by always comparing yourself to other people? Your job, your relationships, just walking into church even? Pride is always comparing. But humility, the competition is over. You can celebrate people who are really successful and you can try to be the best you can for yourself. Humility would free you from always needing to compare and to always see other people as competition. Second, humility would free you from needing to be mean to other people. You know, pride is terribly insecure. If your identity is built on your pride, you have to cover all your weaknesses. And one of the ways we do that is by being mean because meanness is painful and it redirects attention. So proud people are often mean, but humble people can be kind. Third way we'd be free. (laughs) Humility would free you from always needing to show off. You don't need to know everything about everything. You can learn. You can not be afraid to speak up when you need to, but you don't always need to be the center of attention. Fourth, humility would free you to be flexible. You could go with the flow. You don't always have to get things your way. You can surrender. You can give in. On matters of preference, you can be flexible. On matters of principle, you can be firm. Fifth, humility would free you to confess your faults, to acknowledge weakness, and to receive criticism. You know, the only way that you're ever going to grow, the only way that I'm ever going to develop as a person is by being able to receive criticism, to confess my weakness, and even to say sorry when I need to. And if I can't do that, I'm limiting my own ability to develop and grow holistically. You see, if you criticize somebody who's proud, who builds their identity on who they are, their achievements, their accomplishments, if you criticize that person, even with the best of intention, even if it's true criticism, they either have to get really angry or become despondent. But a humble person can say, thank you for sharing that. I think 95% of what you said is wrong, but 5% is true and I'm gonna, that's gonna be helpful to me. And you can grow and you can become a wiser person. Humility allows you to be self-aware. Freedom, it comes through humility. But let me just say finally, If we were growing in humility, we'd become a community of sacrificial love. In big ways and in small, we'd be able to put the needs of other people ahead of ourselves. So let me just give you a real practical example as we close. I have two kids, three and one years old, which means every single day I am learning about my need for humility. Every single day I'm learning in big ways and in small ways about what it means to die to what I want 
in order to love and serve and be present for my kids. Give you an example. I love to read, particularly 17th century theology. But right now, I spend a lot of my time when I'd like to be reading theology, reading Goodnight Gorilla on repeat. (laughs) I'm learning what it means to die to myself every day in new ways. And part of that is just being a good parent. Part of it is self-control and willpower. This is what my kids need. But willpower only takes you so far. But friends, listen. If I wake up in the morning and I say, today I'm going to parent my kids and I'm going to remember the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus, eternally God, took on flesh and he came into this world and he lived a humble life and he went to the cross for me. And I see that. That frees me to die to myself and to move into my world, into my family, into my relationships and say, not what can I take, but how can I give? It's the self-sacrificial love of humility. Close with this. B.B. Warfield taught theology last century, has a great sermon. You can find it online called Imitating the Incarnation. It's on Philippians 2. At the end of his sermon, he says this. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of others. Wherever people suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever they strive, there will we be to help. Wherever they fall, there will we be to uplift. Wherever they succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and fellows. It means absorption into them. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by so loving them that their lives become ours. Love and self-sacrifice comes from humility. Imagine what your relationships would be like, what this church would be like, what this city would be like if this truth went deep into our hearts. Let's pray. Our God, as we come now to a time of response, take all the words that have been said and fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to see his breathtaking humility today. Help us to be transformed as we fix our eyes on Jesus and his dying for us in our place. And right now, Lord, I know many of us are experiencing relational pain. Personally, friendships, romance, communities. Some of us come from nations that are fighting. Lord, bring unity through humility. Help us to be a humble people, to see what we have in common, to be able to speak truth, but to do that in love and to experience healing as we look to Jesus right now. In whose name we pray, amen.